Welcome in, everyone, to episode 13 of Up and Down, a disc golf analytics podcast. I'm Jesse, joined as usual by Joey. Hello. We're the nerds who run this thing, and on this episode, we'll be breaking down the 2022 Ledgestone Open. But first, Joey, how you doing, man? I'm doing great laughing to myself because this is our second take of this. Uh, had a little mess up of the episode name a minute ago. So yeah, nice to- I was still laughing even uh, during this cut of the intro because yeah, I uh, I updated everything about the intro except you know the name of the tournament that we just played and th- and that's kind of a big deal. But good <laughs> chuckles all around. It it is a big deal, but it it feels good to uh, be back on the mic with you. It's been a little while, so we've both been very busy, some vacations and stuff, traveling around. So nice to hear your voice again. Yeah, it's certainly been a while. It's been three weeks. I think the last episode we did was Deglow. Yeah. Yeah, we did Deglow, and then we had a little special feature in there. Yep. So missed some tournaments I would have loved to talk about, especially Mid America Open with Alden Harris and Gannon Burr finishing at the top. Sarah Hokum as well taking it down on the FPO side for Mid America Open. But life is what it is. So hey, just happy to be back on the mic this time around. Yeah, excited to talk about Ledgestone. Uh, definitely an interesting one. Um, really excited to just jump right into it and, and talk some stats. Always one of the best events of the year. Certainly, arguably one of the hardest courses, for sure. Yeah. Uh, even though they only play it for two of the four rounds. But yeah, just always one of the events that I look forward to the most because of Northwood Black in particular. Just such a fun course to watch on the MPO side. And actually, they do play that course on the FPO side, too. I, I shouldn't make it sound like they don't. Right. Um, but the women play a different other course than the men. That's right. They don't play Lake Eureka like the men do. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I love watching Northwoods. Lake, Lake Eureka admittedly doesn't really do anything for me. Um, but I love watching everybody struggle through Northwoods and watching the people that don't struggle through it and... You know, I've said it before, this is one of my favorite stretches of tournaments of the year. Um, Idlewild, Ledgestone, D-Glow, um, and then moving into MVP and GMC in the fall. Just all my favorite tournaments are in the second half of the year. Yep, and this year we get Worlds still yet to play. Yes. Definitely, it's about two months later than it was last year. So That's last right. year it was last full week of June. Now it's the last day or so of August bleeding into early September. So quite a bit different there, but yeah, it just makes this stretch of the season all that more exciting. Yeah. And I got to say, I was thinking about this right before we hopped on the mic. Could you imagine how awesome it would be if they took mid America open or just any event at harmony bends and upgraded it from a silver series to a DGPT elite series yeah, that course in, is incredible. Yeah, so Harmony Bends, like, there should be an Elite Series event on that course. I have no idea why there's not. And you could take off Emporia as an Elite Series event. Agreed. And I think that would be such an amazing change for the sport. I totally agree. Yep, and, you know, we've got Eagles Crossing is kind of being shaped into a Pro Tour-ready course. We could see that, I mean, I don't know, as soon as next year, maybe. Oh, for Certainly, sure. Certainly, I think the year after was 
very much in the cards. So. Oh, I mean, the, the precedent is there. The preserve had only been a course for less than a year before it was a pro tour event. Yep. So uh, I think there's some room to get some some bigger events. And I started thinking about all this because I I couldn't believe that Harmony Benz only hosts the Silver Series event. Like that just yep. doesn't make any sense. That's one of the best courses in the country. And it's and it's very well known as one of the best right. courses in the country. Yeah. Yeah. It might have kind of a similar problem to what the fort has in the sense that it's very difficult to get a good density of spectators in there. Sure. But there are also other courses that still currently have that problem. So North I don't know where we draw the line. But Yeah. Neither here nor there, I guess. All right. Why don't you say we finally jump into it with 60-second stories? This is all the biggest headlines from the weekend, of course, as usual, in 60 seconds or less apiece. So why don't we kick it off with the FPO and Missy Gannon putting the smackdown on the FPO field, taking down her second event of the season and winning by six. Yeah, six strokes over Own Scoggins, Own clawing her way up the leaderboard. Um, she wasn't even on on lead guard. She was on chase guard and worked her way back up. Also, Missy edging out Kristen Tatar, Lisa Fakus, and Paige Pierce. Alexis Mandahano having one of the best rounds that we've seen in the FPO on Northwoods. So no question. That was incredible showing, but it was the Missy show coming down the stretch. It didn't seem like there was a whole lot of doubts. She only went OB twice in the tournament, and that held her right up on the top of the leaderboard. Yeah, that is huge, especially at a course like Northwoods. Obviously, they they played Sunset Hills in there as well. But right. you know, I'm I'm forecasting, foreshadowing a little bit in the future that we're going to talk about that with Ricky as well, taking it down the MPO side. And a huge part of that was having as few OBs as he did. Looking at his shots gained distribution, it it was good for Ricky, especially the T to green game. Um, but the OB is really what kept him at the top of the top. And yeah. certainly the same thing for Missy, having only those two OBs. If she just had two OBs at Northwood, that would have been impressive. Amazing. One per right. round. Yeah. And then to also, I mean, for the whole four rounds. Yeah, extremely impressive on that front. Yeah, and like you said, over in the MPO, Ricky Waisaki taking it down. And the scores don't really tell the story here. It was it was a better battle than the scores make it seem in the final round, mostly between Ricky Waisaki and Gannon Burr. Anthony Brella was in the mix for a long time. Um, Matty O was up there as well. Paul clawed his way up from chase card to second place, but Gannon had a couple tough holes towards the end that kind of dropped him back. Um, but it was it was the Ricky and Gannon show for most of the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to take a moment to go back to the FPO and specifically shout out Lisa Fakus, who finishes on the podium tied with Kristen and Paige, like you mentioned. This is her best finish at an Elite Series event so far. Um, she did finish third at the Match Play Championship. I'm going to exclude that for the purposes of this conversation. But it looks like her next best finish at an Elite Series is ninth at Jonesboro. 
this so, year or ever? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So that's that surprises me. She has a that couple third place finishes well. at Silver Series events. Yeah. But Elite Series events, her best finish was ninth. That that is very interesting. That is interesting. I know she's she's gotten I think as high as third or fourth at Worlds. Um but that definitely surprises me. I mean, Lisa's been around the block, so. Yep, so very strong finish for her getting that podium this weekend. Yeah, back so to, those are the... Yeah, Go back ahead. to the MPO. Yeah, so... Uh, anything else you wanted to say about Rick here? No, I... You know, it was really cool to see Rick bring down another one. That's three Elite Series wins for him this year. He also got Texas States and DDO. It looked like he was battling a bit of an injury. You know, the Jomez guys were talking about it a little bit. They were saying they thought it was his ribs, but he pointed out at the end that it was a muscle in his back and it was affecting his putting a little bit. Had a couple rough, short miss putts in there, but wasn't enough to to break the lead that he had gained for himself. Yeah, it's interesting that this seemed to only be bothering him on the putting. You think with your back or anything in your core that would affect you on almost any type of movement that you're doing, whether it's in an actual stroke or not. I mean, even just walking up and down the course, you'd think you sure. could aggravate something like that. But it seemed like his stroke was was there. You know, it, it didn't affect his tee to green game, obviously. He put up 21-plus strokes gain tee to green. So it didn't yeah. affect him there, which which is obviously what kept him in the mix. Uh, that and staying clean, of course. But it will be interesting to see how the back injury develops. And, I mean, hopefully it doesn't, right? That's obviously the best-case scenario. Right. Uh, but something we'll have to watch for in the future. Yeah. You know, I, I liked hearing him talk about it toward the end. You know, after the end of the round, he said, you know, injuries, dealing with injuries is is part of professional sports. You know, he's a professional athlete. And it's easy to forget that sometimes, that, Injuries can be their biggest challenge, and working through that is is part of his job, you know, and taking care of himself and making sure that he's respecting his body in the long term, long term and the short term, you know. Yeah, and he's one of the best guys at that, right? At managing his body and understanding yeah. that he's an athlete. He's got uh, quite a contract behind that health and that body of his yeah, so. it's not just it's not just him that he's protecting right yep him it's him most importantly but of there course. are other of course you know stakeholders it's not just yeah other things i notice here gannon burr getting another podium finish anthony barella continuing his hot streak coming off mid-america open taking fourth Corey ellis finishing fifth that's a name we've been seeing near the top in the recent uh, past as well. And I got to shout this out. Randon Latta tying for eighth Innova sponsored pro previous best finish this year was 15th for him. And that was also mid America open. And then I think the next best finish prior to that was 23rd. So great finish for him on the weekend, cracking the top 10. Yeah. Nice job to Randon. And we've been tracking this stat for a while. This didn't happen this past weekend. This happened at Deglow. But Ginnenberg's streak of top 10s has come to an end. He finished 12th at Deglow after 
going on a top 10 streak of 11 events in a row elite and silver series, starting at Texas States. Was it 11? I it thought was, it was 12. It was, I'm, I'm counting 11 here. Okay. Hmm. Um, Fair enough. Nevertheless, an amazing streak. Oh, I wonder if, did you include the match play event? I did not include the match okay. play. Okay, I, I think that's what happened. I just went down the UDISC rankings and just looked at all the placements that were 10th or better. And I'm sure, sure I threw in the match play in there. So that's probably yep. what that was. Yeah, so how about we jump over to what it takes and let's talk about what it took for these champions to take down the podium finish. Absolutely. I'll kick it right back to you. I usually let you do that one. <laughs> sure, I love doing it. So starting on the FPO side, this is true on the MPO side. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but the winners here, the one stat that set them apart the most was staying clean. So Missy had only two OB strokes. The next highest finisher that had only two OB strokes was tied for 21st place. Yeah, Cynthia very, Ricciotti. Very, yeah, very far down. So, you know, just to name a few, Own, Kristen, Lisa, Paige, and Alexis Mandahano, four, seven, five, four, five strokes OB. So Missy's gaining three to five strokes on on all those players there. Missy essentially tied for first place in strokes gained T to green. She was technically second behind Katie Tati, but by 0 0.01 of a stroke. So I'm going to give Missy the tie there. So being able to lead the tournament in strokes gained T to green while, you know, eliminating OB strokes compared to your peers is is the way to do it. She only gained three strokes putting, which was not amazing, but the tee to green game and avoiding the OB was was enough to give her the lead. She performed really well in circle one in regulation, second place behind Juliana Corver, and she was also top five in parked as well. I have to shout out Own Scoggins in second place, six strokes behind Missy, but Own was able to pull off second place by gaining 14.35 strokes putting. So to put that in perspective, the next highest finisher, Holland Hanley, gained 7.3. So Own nearly doubled the second place finisher putting. She gained yeah. 0.1 strokes tee to green. This was all putting. She got second place just by being the best putter in FPO. Yeah, she was like the definition of average tee to green, right? I mean, the, the strokes gain was almost zero. Yeah. And I am going to really put this in perspective here by jumping very prematurely to a guess the stat. So, Owen Scoggins finished second with, like we said, Essentially zero strokes gained T to green. So I went through every single tournament that has been played this year on the FPO side to figure out, because obviously this is the lowest shots gained T to green that any second place finisher in the FPO has had this season. Of course. What is the next lowest 
shots gained tee to green that any second place FPO finisher has had this year? Mm, I bet it's I bet it's four or five. Okay, why do you say that? I'm I'm looking down the list of who else finished in this in Ledgestone. And I'm seeing that there's people in the top 10 that have, you know, six, five. So that's, that's where my guess comes from is I, I can imagine somebody putting really well, let's say own <laughs> and, sure. yep. and, yep. and ending up, you know, on the podium, mostly due to putting strokes. Okay. So I'll give you the answer. Okay. The answer is Valerie Mondahano okay. at the open at Belton finished in second and she had 8.5 strokes wow. gained tee to green it's not even close how oh it gets better ledgestone was a four round tournament yeah, the open at so, belton was a three round tournament so the strokes gained per round is even less yes so the lowest shots gained tee to green that any second place finisher has had at a four round tournament was Owen Scoggins at the Portland Open where she gained T to green 11.36 strokes. Wow. That's insane. Yes. And at this tournament, she gained almost, a t- well, basically a tenth of a stroke. Basically nothing. Yeah. So to exaggerate Owen's incredible performance even more, 88% C1X. 44% C2. If Own gained no straight strokes in C1X, if she was exactly average in C1X, she still would have finished in first place strokes gained putting. That's how many strokes she gained in circle two. Yes. Yep. She gained 8.4 in circle two. Nobody else gained more than 7.3 in total putting. And Owen outdid that by a full stroke just in circle two. I don't know how she does it. I don't know either, but the uh, the scatter plot that you made with circle one putting versus circle two putting percentages, yep. I would be really interested to see if Owen is still, like where she is now compared to where she was when you made that graphic. I bet she's further away. I think in circle two, she's higher Yeah. than where she was. Yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to check that. But Maybe we'll, we'll update that one, yeah. We, yeah, we may have to. It would, be, it would be cool. And when we remake that, I think we should put where Owen was the first time we made the graphic and yeah. where she is now. And then just for everyone show. else, just put where they are now. Just to show that she's gotten even better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Over on the MPO side for what it takes, the story was pretty similar. Ricky Wysocki finishing first in strokes gained tee to green, not too far above Paul McBeth and Randon Latta in second and third. Again, staying clean was the name of the game here. Ricky with only three strokes OB. And there you got to scroll really, really far to see anybody else that had anything even close because the next closest one was Zach Melton with four and he was tied for 65th. 
So Rick had the lowest OB strokes, highest strokes gained T to green, and keeping it clean and being aggressive T to green was the name of the game, especially because his putting wasn't working for him. We talked about the injury a little bit, gaining 0.1 strokes C1X and about one and a half in circle two, but he was only able to gain 1.6 strokes on the putting green. Yeah, what you mentioned there with the OBs, you talk about Ricky having three. Paul McBeth, Gannon Burr, and Anthony Barella finished second, third, and fourth, and their OB totals respectively were eight, eight, and ten. Right. So quite a difference. And I meant to mention when you mentioned uh, Missy Gannon only having two OBs and mentioning that Cynthia Ricciotti also had two OBs and was really the only other player to, to match Missy, that is only looking at players who made the cut. So there yeah. were some players with zero OBs or one OB. Uh, those players did not make the cut. They did not play all four rounds. And so just keeping it clear that when we have a cut, it does tend to get confusing because when you sort the stats, it does not differentiate between who made the cut and who didn't. So it's not entirely apples to oranges because those players did not even play the same number of rounds. So just something to keep in mind when you're at home by yourself looking at these statistics and ooing and aahing in the way that Joey and I surely do. Yep. Uh, just keep that in the back of your head. Yeah, and sometimes it's even different courses, right? Not playing the final round at Northwoods certainly makes makes a difference. Yeah, huge difference. That, that's a good point because the MPO, everyone who played, whether you made the cut or not, they played two rounds at Northwood Black. Not true of the FPO. So right. good, good call there. Yeah, nobody really on toward the top of the leaderboard in MPO had a phenomenal putting performance. Um, the the next best one, Matty O, who finished tied for fifth, was able to finish third in strokes gained putting, but putting was really not not the major story in MPO this weekend. Yeah, if anything, I think it was a major story not because of how good it was, but specifically because of how average Ricky was. Right. Obviously, right. you know, Ricky is known as one of the best putters of all time, if not the best putter of all time. Sure. And uh, obviously we know now that he's got this back injury that could be hindering him on the green, but only gaining a tenth of a stroke in C1X, and he was able to make for make up for it a little bit in circle two, gaining about one and a half strokes from circle two. But that circle one X game is not what's propelling him to the top uh, with that injury still bothering him. No. Granted, he's showing maybe he doesn't need it, and uh, an average C1X putting performance is good enough sometimes for sure. Ricky. But obviously, when you see Ricky take down a tournament, you expect that he's going to be, I don't know, 95 to 100% from circle one X when in this tournament he was only 83%. Yeah, it's it, like you said, it's really the tee to green game that held him together. First in parked, first in circle one in regulation, first in scramble, which on a course like Northwood, there's certainly many scramble opportunities. Like we talked about in one of our previous episodes, circle one in regulation has the highest correlation with birdie percentage. So even if you're only making 83% of your putts, 
circle one putting doesn't have that strong of a correlation. As long as you're getting in circle one in regulation, the difference between 80 and 90% in circle one X doesn't make a huge difference with regards to how many birdies you're getting. Absolutely. And that number, uh, circle one in regulation, I'm trying to go through just rounds two and three to see what his circle one in regulation looked like just on those courses. Sure. And it's actually not that different. Um, my hotel Wi-Fi is deciding to cooperate. So round three, Ricky's circle one in regulation was 50%. So that pretty closely aligns to his overall tournament average. Round two was a little bit lower, but again, his overall tournament average was, what do we say, 46? Yep. He had, at Northwoods, one round that was better than that, one round that was worse. That round that was a little worse, I think, was 39%. So, uh, surprisingly, you know, able to keep pretty consistent at Northwood Black with what he was able to do at Eureka. So, yeah, that that's impressive yeah. in itself. Obviously, Eureka's no cakewalk, but... Northwood Black is also possibly the hardest disc golf course in the world. So yeah, so there's I, that. I, I think it's definitely the hardest one on tour. I, I feel comfortable saying that, but I've also never played it. So right, yeah, uh, I do like the caveat of hardest course on tour. I mean, who knows what else is out there that that we don't know about? We mentioned Eagles Crossing earlier. Um, we have seen some pros play through that on different forms of coverage. But I mean, that course could certainly be tweaked by the time it's actually on the pro tour. So who knows? But uh, yeah, I think it's objectively one of the hardest courses. Yeah, for sure. After that subjective, for sure. But yes, <laughs> absolutely one of the hardest courses. And speaking of, I think that's a good segue into crunch time because I want to talk about Northwood Black and just how hard it really was. Give it to me. All right, it's crunch time, people. We've crunched the numbers from the entire field, top to bottom, to bring you just the coolest stats from the weekend. That's kind of what we're all about here. So, Northwood Black. So, what I specifically dug into was the MPO side of Northwood Black, and I thought there was a chance that going into this event, Northwood Black could make a case to be the hardest either the hardest course that they've played all year or maybe one individual round at Northwood Black could contend for the hardest round, if you could think of it, uh, on the Pro Tour all year. And so I dig into the numbers, and I'm specifically looking at the number of holes that played over par in rounds two and rounds three. Uh, it is a little weird that they played Northwood Black for round two and three, and not, you know, the first two or the last two or alternating. I I don't think there's another tournament where they go A, B, B, A for courses. But rounds two and three at Northwood Black, and in round two, 11 of the holes played over par, and in round three, 13 holes played over par. So I saw that, and I said, okay, that has to be one of the largest number of holes over par that we've seen all year. And I had to look into it, and I was kind of correct, but I 
the Northwood Black Rounds were not as high up the list of number of holes over par as I thought they would be. So before I reveal the answer to that question, Joey, do you have any guesses as to what tournament had the most holes over par for a single round? Um, We did mention it when it happened on the podcast. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I, DDO was a crap show with the wind, right? It was DDO. Yeah. Yeah. So DDO uh, round one had 12 holes that played over par. Round two had 14. And round three, every single hole played over par. Wow. I mean, yeah. the conditions there really came into play. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So there was that one round of DDO where all 18 holes played over par. There was also another round at DDO where 14 of the 18 played over par. And also, I didn't remember this, but round one at the OTB Open, 15 holes played over par. So I think that was also a weather, a pretty inclement weather round. I don't remember exactly, and I don't know why, because it seems, looking at that number... Didn't it rain at OTB? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I I was just surprised, because when I saw that number, I said, okay, the the weather must have been really bad, but I didn't remember it right off the cuff. But I am pretty sure it did rain pretty bad, and you seem to remember the same thing, so... But anyway, so those three rounds, it was two rounds at DDO and that one round at OTB that were the only rounds that had more holes that played over par than round three at Northwood Black. Round two had 11 holes that played over par, and there were actually a good number of rounds that have been played this year with 11 holes that played over par. So I didn't take note of all of them. But one of the things that surprised me there actually was the open at Tallahassee. Every single round of the Open at Tallahassee had at least 10 holes play over par. Yeah, I don't remember that course that well, um, but it surprises me to hear that it was that that hard. Yeah, so it was Tom Brown was the name of the course. And I remember it was very popular amongst the pros, and a lot of pros were saying this is a absolutely fantastic course. But in my head, like thinking about how the actual course played and what some of the holes were. I There's not a whole lot that I remember. And it was a silver series too. And it, it was one of those ones that was kind of easy to gloss over because the following tournament was Champions Cup. And I think that was kind of on everyone's mind and we might not have paid as much attention to Tallahassee. So it, it very much shocked me that two rounds at Tallahassee had 11 holes play over par. Because that's one of the highest numbers that we've seen all year. Right. And at the time, we didn't know that, right? We weren't really tracking uh, holes over par as a metric. And so we, I don't think we really appreciated how hard that course apparently was. Yeah, this is really, really interesting to look into. I, I like being able to compare the courses like that. You know, obviously conditions come into play, but I think, you know, the average over a few a few rounds... Gives us some insight into how to compare these courses to one another. For sure. 
So moving on from Northwood Black, I know we mentioned this earlier, but I have to say this again. Gannon Burr, 11 straight events finishing in the top 10. That streak is over. It ended at Deeglo when he finished 12th. But since then, he has had two, not only two consecutive top 10s, two consecutive podiums. He finished second at Mid-America Open. He was in the running for the for the victory that whole tournament. And then coming off that second place finish, he takes third at this week's Ledgestone Open. So two consecutive podiums. He's, I mean, he's right back on track. He has played 17 DGPT events this year and has 14 top 10s. I, it's only a matter of time. I mean, it, I know he played last year and, and played really well, particularly towards the end of last year, but it feels like just so suddenly, you know, even just after LVC, we were saying, you know, is he going to be able to keep this up? Maybe, maybe that was his one chance to win and he, he blew it and, you know, he's won a silver series event and he's been in contention in, you know, the vast majority of elite series events he's been in the top 10 like it's i wouldn't be surprised if he got one this year i know we're we're running out of events yeah but it, it wouldn't surprise me um and and i think we all know that he's gonna have multiple major wins before his career is over so hot take okay Gannon Burr is the front runner for player of the year. Um I I think I have to agree with you. And and the reason for that is he has been objectively the most consistent high finisher. He you know, he doesn't have major wins, he doesn't have the wins that really inflate his pro tour points and all of that stuff, but he has played more events than anybody else in the top eight. He's finished the best at them consistently. I think him being so young and it be really being like a breakout performance in, in some sense gives gives him some, yeah, I think, some extra credit. Yeah, I think everything is kind of going right for making the argument that he's the front runner for the player of the year. Obviously, the top 10 streak is something that, you know, that's not a stat that just exists between us. That anyone who watches Jomez, like, they talk about that fairly regularly. Yeah. Um, and even if it's not the exact language of number of consecutive top 10s, they're, they're at least, you know, they're always talking about him and, and keeping him at the forefront of everyone's thinking right everyone is aware of Gannon Burr when they think about the best players in the world so he's got that going for him most top tens uh, I don't think it's super close I haven't counted but no, he's got to no, be at the top yeah um and when you look at guys who um you know people are going to make the argument that oh he he hasn't even won an elite series event like how can he be player of the year but we also mentioned, um, I think Statmando was able to feed this to the Jomez crew, but no player prior to Ricky's win this year had won 
three or more events so far this year. The most wins that anyone had was two. Right. Obviously, Ricky just got his third, so now he's solidly in the lead. But Ricky has not played the whole season. Um, Chris has you know, been he, he's played absent most for a events. while. Yeah. Yep. Um, Chris Dickerson is another guy who has a major, and he has a couple silver series. Um, and when he's playing, he's consistent. You know, he doesn't really have any finishes outside the top 10. He doesn't literally have zero finishes outside the top 10, but he doesn't have very many. But he also just hasn't played a lot of tournaments in general, right? Right. So I think those are really the only two guys who would have a chance over Ganon. Um, I don't think Paul's season has, has really quite been good enough to be in contention. Obviously, there's still some significant events left in the year, but at this point, Gannon gets my vote at the very least. Yeah, for me, I think, you know, the the last few events, especially with GMC and MVP being playoff events this year, that's going to matter a lot, I think. And then the the majors, you know, Worlds and and USDGC are extremely important to me you know if if chris comes out and and wins a second major in a year i I mean that's that's huge you know in in chris's favor where again if if ganon comes out and wins either worlds or usdgc i i think he's a shoe-in at that point yeah now before i ask you my next question I've will take it back to crunch time proper for this little stat here. So Kristen Tatar on the FPO side, she gets another podium finish. She ties for third at 12 under par one stroke behind second place. She has played 10 DGPT and European pro tour events. So nine DGPT one European pro tour. She has one DNF. That was recently at the Tinny Open in Finland. Every event that she has finished has been a podium. She has not finished outside the podium. However, she has not played quite as many events as some of the other FPO players. So is Kristen Tatar your FPO player of the year? Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's a hot take, but in my opinion, it is absolutely Kristen Tatar. I agree. I don't know if I would say absolutely, but I I think she gets my vote. I think we're getting to the point in this sport where there's so many events, especially with the Silver Series, that we've got to be comfortable with the expectation that not everybody's going to play every event. Completely agree. For somebody that is as strong of a player where they can afford to, to take a break, especially, especially a European player that is traveling extremely far away from home to come even play these events on courses that she hasn't played nearly as many times as these other players. I think you've, you've got to allow that, right? You've got to allow people to take breaks. You've got to allow people to not play events. And I don't think that you should penalize that. That being said, if somebody played twice as many events as Kristen and also finished only on the podium in all of those events, of course you would afford that person the benefit in that case. But that's that's not what we're looking at here. 
Yeah, and it's that's not even anywhere close to what we're really looking at. So no, I and totally agree. I think it's got to be Kristen. I I think it's it's Kristen in my book. You know, I I <laughs> I think if what happened on hole eighteen in the final round at Champions Cup didn't happen, I don't I don't know that it would be even as much of a conversation if she it absolutely would that, not with that yeah. win. Yeah. Totally so agree. we'll see what happens with with worlds, um, and in in my eyes, you know, you you and I have talked about this in the past. the The throw pink championship and the tour championship, in in my mind, are majors. I I know they're not technically PDGA majors, but they are weighted as highly as majors. So I think those those events are going to matter. Completely agree. So jumping back into crunch time here, we mentioned Randon Latt a, a little bit earlier, and I think that was the first time we'd ever really talked about him, but there is more to say because in round two, Randon Latta did something extremely, extremely impressive. Randon Latta in round two, keep in mind, this is at Northwood Black. He gained 13 and a quarter strokes T to green, 13.24. The next best in that round was Ben Calloway at 9.4. Not even so close. So we're, we're talking almost four strokes more than anybody else, Tita Green. At Northwood. At Northwood. So in that same round, round two. At Northwood, 12 of 18 circle ones in regulation. Circle one, not circle two. 12 circle ones in regulation. Yeah, the 67%. Next, 67%. The next best for rounds two and three combined was 50%. Nine of 18. Wow. And he hit 12 in round two. In that same round, 78% circle two in regulation. So that's 14 of 18. And across rounds two and three, that was tied for the best. And it gets better. So for looking across all rounds that have been played for the entire season, it is the most strokes that anyone has gained T to green in a single round. And it's not close. The next best single round strokes gained T to green all season was at the Mid-America Open in round one. Aaron Gossage gained 10.2. And Randon Latta beat that by three. It's, it's huge. That's absolutely huge. It's not close. So what I do have to mention, after round one, we put a graphic on our Instagram of some circle two putting in the FPO. After we did that, Holland Handley, who we had tagged in that graphic as having a fantastic circle two putting performance, she reached out to us and informed us that the UDisc live scoring for not just her, but her card was not exactly done correctly. We don't have all the details on that, but they were going to report to UDisc live that some of the scoring there was not correct. And specifically that some of the distances on those putts were not correct. I think 
uh, Holland in particular was given credit for making some circle two putts that she felt were really circle one putts. So if there was some inconsistency about where the circles were, that could affect the circle in regulation stats. Um, so just something to keep in mind. Obviously, we don't know the extent of that problem if it was just limited to Holland's card in the FPO um, or if it was on a majority of cards. I guess it really comes down to was it that one particular scorekeeper or was it a matter of the circles not really being marked super well on the course, which would give all the scorekeepers problems? Not entirely sure, so just keep that in the back of your minds as you think about these stats. Uh, that was something that came up. But yeah, as it stands right now, I mean, those are some crazy circle one and circle two in regulation numbers for Randon Latta. On a on a course that does not afford that very well. You know, you were talking about Rick, who won the tournament, and you were saying that, you know, one of his rounds was 39 and the other one was 46, I think, if I remember right. Uh, 50. And- yeah. 50 and and those were great numbers you know yeah i mean if you're getting half of the holes at northwood black to be in circle one in regulation like you're kind of beating the course like you're right. you're doing better than you probably expected to be doing first off um and certainly better than the average player in the field yeah so this for, is an interesting perspective sure. too because at first, I was like, man, that's a lot of strokes to gain on the field at a course that's this hard. Like, it, it felt like those two things would work against each other. And it does work against itself in the sense that at a harder course, it would be harder to perform well tee to green. But strokes gained tee to green looks at the average across the field. So... Northwood Black is going to be harder on the average field than the average course. So if your round is very much above average, that should gain you more strokes over the field than a similar performance at a different course. And it's hard to say, quote, a similar performance at a different course because that in itself is kind of an oxymoron. It's hard to compare different rounds at different courses. But, you know, if you're hitting a large percentage of fairways, let's say at Northwood, you should gain more strokes on the field than at an easier course, right? Because fewer people are going to be hitting fairways and getting into the circle and regulation. I think the width of the bell curve there is probably much wider at Northwood. Exactly. Right? I think the key word is separation, right? This course creates more separation, and when you have more separation, you open the door for someone to really separate themselves from the average, right? And that's that's what strokes gained is. It It is separation from the average. Right. So I think I don't know that you could realistically build a course that it would literally be impossible to hit, I don't know, 15 circle ones in regulation. I think no matter what type of course you build, someone could do it on any given day, but the average in the field would would absolutely not, right? And so I think the ceiling on 
strokes gain T to green numbers is going to be the highest at these really hard score separating courses. And that seems to be true because not only did Randon Latta get the highest single round strokes gain T to green, but he blew it out of the water. Like it, it was not remotely close. Right. So I think that in particular speaks to just how much separation potential there was on this course, which is exactly what makes it one of the signature courses on the pro tour. Yeah. You know, and, and even going into to round three and for the FPO in round four, it's, it's so cool to be able to say, I don't know how this is going to end because they're playing Northwood, you know? Exactly. It's, it's such a grind to be able to make it out of that course alive, and it makes it all the more impressive when somebody shoots six, seven, eight down. You know, that's amazing to be able to, to say that. You know, any one of those holes, maybe not anyone, but a vast majority of those holes, you could easily imagine somebody taking a du- double bogey due to just, you know, one early kick, just one mistake. Yeah. You know? And it's and, possible on any hole. Right. And you're talking about, you know, two and three stroke swings easily. And I, I like that in, in the course design. I think for this event in the future, I would almost rather they did a three round tournament and just play every round at Northwood Black. Yeah, me too. I, I said it before. Or, a, or even a four round tournament. You know, it doesn't have to be three. Just play all four rounds. Sure. That's what European Open did, right? I think European Open was the only other four-round tournament that I can think of that played all four rounds on the same course. Yeah. Yeah, I said it before. I'm I'm not the biggest fan of, of Lake Eureka. It it feels a little contrived. You know, it, it feels like they're taking a place that is not meant to be a disc golf course and trying to make it into a disc golf course. Um, some of those holes are... You know, they, they essentially create the entirety of the hole just using OB. You know, <laughs> like... Yeah, there I, were a lot of OBs. Yeah, is it 10 or 11, the, the bridge hole? Um, that's, you know, the entire fairway. It's a cool hole, don't get me wrong, but, you know, they've, they've created that using OB, and I, I don't like that. The bridge hole, are you talking the one that Ganon threw in on? Yeah. That's hole nine. Nine. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. See, Joe, we got to be better at this because I only have eight notes in crunch time. Eight. And uh, I thought for sure this was going to be like a half hour episode and it it just never works out that way. <laughs> it's been a while. But though, I mean, so. yeah. See, I, I kind of knew I didn't have a whole lot of stats here. And so I started asking you other questions like player of the year and stuff and fill the gap. So I, I brought this on myself. So. They've, they've been good discussions, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we got time right. for a couple more. Yeah, yeah. So here's the stat for you. So every single player in the MPO side, no matter if they made the cut or not, had at least seven holes over par. So typically in a three-round tournament, let's say, it's common that the MPO player who has the fewest holes over par has anywhere between two and four holes over par. And even for a four-round event, that number historically doesn't really change a whole lot. 
I mean, look at Champions Cup. I think Emerson Keith only had one hole over par for that whole 72 holes. And uh, this event, Ledgestone, between Eureka and Northwood, obviously Northwood is just extremely hard on every hole, and Eureka is more so an artifact of a lot of those OBs, but every single player in the MPO had at least seven holes over par, and that's... I haven't checked all the other tournaments, haven't done the math, but that's probably the highest number on the year. That's the highest number that I can remember. Yeah, sounds right to me. And the two players that had seven holes over par were Ricky Waisaki and Matt Oram. All other players had more than seven. Speaking of seven... In the MPO, there were seven different birdie streaks of six consecutive birdies. Seven different streaks of six, okay? That is a huge amount of birdie streaks. Um, Of those seven birdie streaks of six, they were done by six different players, Paul Macbeth being the only player to do it two different times. The other five players being Ricky Wysocki, Gannon Burr, Corey Ellis, Jake Hebenheimer, and Reed Friskira. Couple surprise names sneaking in there at the end. Yeah. It's it's crazy how Paul just cranks out those six round six hole stretches. It, it, yeah. it just Make seems beast mode, baby. I, exactly. He just I don't I don't know how he turns it on. And in this one, it was holes 12 through 17 coming down the stretch in the final round. Right. I from, mean, when we talk Chase about beast mode, it's not just going on these really, really hot stretches. It's going on these really hot stretches when it counts. Right. You know, the, and, other, right. the other one wrapped around from hole 16 of round one to hole three of round two, um, you know, you you could easily say that that doesn't matter that much, you know. Yeah, it's but, not as much of a momentum uh, highlight, if you will. Yeah, he was just uh, recovering from the triple bogey he took on hole thirteen in in round sure. one. <laughs> so, so interestingly, talking about uh, six consecutive birdies happening at a clutch time. So Ricky Wysocki's six birdie streak happened also in the final round holes eight through 13. So also kind of in the later half of that final round and Corey Ellis got his six as the same that Paul did. It was round four holes, 12 through 17. That was exactly the same stretch that Corey got. So that was good for him. Because going into hole 12 in that final round, he was only four down on that round and was able to finish the round at 10 under. Wow. And that was the hot round on the day by two strokes. So, yeah, all thanks to that six straight birdies. That'll do it. Yeah, that is a good way to do it. And so I think with that, I've only got one more crunch time stat here. So before I get into it, did you happen to put together any guess the stats? 
I do not have any guess the stats for you. Do you have any for me? No, I just had that one. You already did uh, one. Owen Scoggins. Yeah, so that's all that was. Actually, let me take a look at... Uh, I was going to see if I can make this last little note here into a guess the stat for you, but I, I don't really see an easy way to do it, so uh, I'll just get right into it here. In the right. FPO side of things now, out of the 72 holes that were played this weekend, 34 of them, so just under half, played over par. Missy Gannon, keep in mind Missy Gannon took down the tournament by six strokes. However, she only played better on the 34 over par holes by one stroke. She played those holes one stroke better than Alexis Mondahano, uh, who is only one stroke behind her on the over par holes, but Alexis only finished in sixth on the tournament. So looking at the players who were closer to the top of the leaderboard, we look at Missy Gannon, who played the 34 over par holes at three under. Owen Scoggins played them one over. Lisa Fakus played them one over. Kristen Tatar played them two over. Paige Pierce played them four five over. And then you get Alexis Mondahano in sixth who played them two under. And like I said, Missy Gannon was three under. So compared to the whole field, she only did better than the field by one stroke. And that was over Alexis Mondahano. But over the people at the top, she was generally beating them by five or six strokes on those harder holes. Yeah, that's we've talked about that stat before that, you know, most of the winners of these tournaments, I mean, those are the holes where you're going to gain the strokes. So it's looking at, you know, gaining the strokes on those harder holes is is one of the best ways to look at where you got your strokes, because often they create the most separation. Um, and, it you know, it doesn't surprise me that Alexis is that far up on that list either, because... You know, she she had a phenomenal final round at Northwoods, and she played a great tournament. Yeah, this was certainly one of the best tournaments on the year for her, specifically. Uh, cracking into the top 10 and almost the top 5. So, definitely a good one. I, I wish I had gotten you the whole stats. Maybe we could have done the old uh, Monte Carlo on her final round, because it, it was really that good. I mean, it, yeah. it was... Truly a phenomenal round at Northwood Black, right? Um, so obviously, maybe you'll see a graphic on that in the future, but at this time, we don't have that ready. So I'll take the hit on that one. Hmm. But uh, look for that in the future. Yeah, maybe on, on the Instagram or something. Yep. yep it, it was the best round at Northwoods by, by two strokes. There you go. There you go. All right, man. I think that's all I got. Did we miss anything or do you have any closing thoughts here? I don't have any closing thoughts. That's all I've got. I'm excited to be back on the mic and excited to get this episode up and get another one up next week as well. Maybe even Couldn't two. Couldn't agree more. I 
I have an idea for maybe a, a special little feature. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I just thought of it while we were doing this one. I'll, I'll spoil it here. It, it was kind of cool talking about some of the hot takes with the player of the year and the standings and things like that. And I think maybe we could do an episode where we maybe break our own rules a little bit. And, you know, I don't think we necessarily shy away from sharing our opinions. Of, of course not. You know, that's why we do this. But I think we tend to keep it pretty objective and stats focused. And maybe we we devote an episode where we we kind of spill the beans on our hot takes for this year and, you know, stuff like who's the player of the year, you know, is Paul Macbeth the best player of all time, you know, those sorts of things and just maybe a little editorial. Yeah, I'd be down. We'll have to see if uh, we got enough content to do a whole episode or maybe just throw it in as uh, the back half of an episode or something. But sure. Yeah, look, I would say look for that one in the future. I think we can certainly put together something for that. Yeah, put our reputation on the line. All right. Hopefully this time next week, you'll be listening to us break down the Des Moines Challenge. And uh, I don't know about you, Joe, but I've been on the socials a little bit, and it seems that the pros are pretty stoked for the course that they're playing at the Des Moines Challenge. I know nothing about it. I don't either. It's a new course, right? I honestly don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Um. No, I, I like when they're excited. It makes it much more fun for us to watch, and it gets us excited about it. So, And importantly, this is going to be the final Elite Series events before the Pro Worlds. Um, and then there's one more Silver Series event, and then we move into the Pro Tour playoffs with GMC, MVP Open, and then finally the Tour Championship. And then, of course, there will be USDGC and the Throw Pink Women's Championship as well. So yep. getting towards the end of the year. It it does really feel like it's getting close to the end of the year. Every time I see Worlds on the schedule, it makes me feel like we go Worlds and then Pro Tour Championship and then that's it. But we do have Green Mountain Championship. We do have MVP Open. We have the US DGC. How could you forget about that? Right. So still plenty of great disc golf to be played the rest of the season. Very excited. All right, Joe, that's all we got. So hopefully this time next week, you'll be listening to us break down the Des Moines Challenge. But until then, peace.